We're going to go ahead and dismiss our children and teachers and volunteers to go to kids' community at this time. Well, oftentimes when we read the Bible, we have to determine if that particular section of Scripture is descriptive or prescriptive. Those are two different things. Uh, For example, if I say to you this morning that this plant is dead, that would be an example of a descriptive phrase because all I'm doing is stating fact. I'm expressing the condition or the sorry condition of the plant before you. Now, On the other hand, if I say, water this plant or it will die, that's an example of a prescriptive phrase. I'm telling you what needs to be done, and I'm also telling you the outcome if you don't do what I've asked to be done. Now, sometimes these two elements are combined together. For example, if this plant dies because you don't water it, you're buying me a new one. Been there, done that, and that's why the smart play is to always have a nursery on retainer. (laughs) Right? You just take photos of all the plants, and uh, when you get back and you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't water that one, you just, I mean, you've done this before with goldfish for your kids. You've done this with certain animals, so really the smart play here is to also do this with your sweeties plants. Jeremiah 17 is one of those places in the Bible that is using both descriptive and prescriptive language. What's happening in Jeremiah 17 is the passage is describing, by way of comparison, two kinds of people. And in the description of these two kinds of people, uh, we see a prescription because these two kinds of people are trusting in two kinds of things. And the two kinds of people who are trusting in two kinds of things, they both receive an outcome or the result of what they're trusting in. And so this section of scripture in Jeremiah 17, which is classified as a wisdom saying or wisdom literature, much like many of the Proverbs or the Psalms or Ecclesiastes, this is what this passage is teaching us. It's telling us that there are really two ways to live. Two ways to live. It's telling us that there are two great results from the way you choose to live. And then it's letting us know about one convicting reality. It talks at the end about the default nature or mode of the human heart. So that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see the two choices that every person has. We're going to see the two results that come from those choices, and we're going to see why we uh, often choose those things that we don't want to choose. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that as we open your word, that you open our heart. As we work through this text, I pray that you work through our heart to reveal what you have for us on this day. I pray through the name of Christ. Amen. Well, let's look in our Bibles in Jeremiah 17, and let's look at these two choices, the two ways to live. The first choice that's given us is presented as the 
the person who trusts in man. Now, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to look at the descriptive language that's given here. Uh, We find that in verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So this is the prescription that we see that's given. If you trust in man, this is going to be the result. And then you look at the next verse, verse 6, and that shows uh, what's going to happen. The example, uh, the description of this person. They're like a shrub in the desert. Shall not see any good come. They shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Now, if you think about the philosophy of our present age, uh, trusting in man would be an example of what we know today as humanism. Uh, Humanism is this progressive philosophy of life that without theism, which essentially means without God of any kind, or of any other supernatural belief, humanism, it affirms the ability and the responsibility to lead an ethical life of personal fulfillment and aspire to the greater good. The American Humanist Association has as their tagline, good without God. This is a good example of what Jeremiah is talking about again in verse 5. The man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Okay, I'm going to say something now that might be difficult for some of you to hear. The AHA is right. They're correct. You can be good without a God. And it's even more of a, of a difficulty uh, and a painful reality, especially when you consider all the people who are supposedly with God who are just flat-out jerks. The aspirational goal of humanism is, is correct. It's, it's, it's on point. You can live an ethical life of, of personal fulfillment. You can aspire to a greater good without God, without theism, without any supernatural belief of any kind. Anyone from any religion or belief or lack thereof can live this kind of life. But this, tragically, as Jesus will tell us, is a life built on sand. Jeremiah describes it this way in verse 6, they are like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. They shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. And so, really, this is where we find one of the great depressing problems. When you construct a life without God and you live a life without God, even a kind and generous life, even aspiring to the greater good, you're living in a spiritual desert. You're living in a parched place of the wilderness. You're living in an uninhabited salt land. And and what this means is that nothing that you ever do in life will ever get any traction. Nothing will sustain. There will be no lasting fruit. But worse, it means that this kind of life in the end, it offers no answer for anxiety or fear. It offers no answer for that. 
Because in the end, this kind of life can't solve those great dilemmas. Now, if you think about it, that if we, if we follow this train of thought, if we come from nothing and we return to nothing, there's really no good reason to live a kind and generous life. I mean, if after all, it's about survival of the fittest, it's a horrible, disappointing, big fat waste of time to live otherwise. It's just so hard to see this reality, much less face this reality, when this life and this world presents us with such immediate evidence to the contrary. But that, I fear, is one of the great and pervasive idols of this age. And it's exactly how this particular deception or exchange works. Uh, Mainly how often we exchange our future for what we can see right in front of us, our present. Tragically, as Jesus observed, this is an example of gaining the whole world and yet forfeiting our souls. There's a greater problem. Uh, C.S. Lewis not only was scratching the surface of it, but he was giving in great detail in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes... A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might be even more difficult to save. And this leads to one of my troubling questions that I don't have an answer for. The question goes like this, and I'm not the first to pose it. How might an increasingly secularized and religiously indifferent population be educated and formed in Christian beliefs and practices? Writers like C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot and others, they've been struggling with trying to find the answer to that question since 1943. But I think that the more disappointing question is this. How might an increasingly secularized and religiously indifferent Christian church be educated and formed in Christian beliefs and practices? Well, there's an alternative. There's another choice. Uh, Jeremiah says you can be the person who trusts in man or you can be the person who trusts in the Lord. And look at the language that's used. In verse 7, we see the prescription, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. That's the prescription. Trust, trust, trust. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Trust in the Lord, blessed. Trust in the Lord, blessed. Now, look at the description in verse 8. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of doubt for it does not cease to bear fruit. You see how great that is? I mean, right there in just that encapsulation, we see right away anxiety and worry. How do you deal with anxiety and worry in this life? There's all kinds of suggestions, all kinds of solutions, but the Bible is trying to point us back to the only real answer to anxiety in your life, the only real answer to fear in your life, is you have to change where your heart is centered. You have to change your trust. 
You have to change what you're looking to for identity and security. I love the contrast. I mean, if you're just to look at verses, okay, just imagine a big column, right? And verses 5 and 6, whoop, verses 5 and 6 on this side, this is dead side, sorry guys. This is dead side, this is alive side. If you look at verses 5 and 6 and you see all the descriptive, and you can move if you want to, and you look at all the descriptive phrases, right, you see back and forth these comparisons, cursed, blessed, shrub, tree. I actually tried to get a tree. It's a long story. I'll tell you later. It sends out its roots by the stream. It, whoops, you know, sends out its roots in the stream. It dwells in the parched land. I mean, you look at these comparisons. In the end, nothing good comes from this choice. Nothing good comes from this choice. Everything that is good, because our God is good, only comes from this choice. And so this is a marvelous section of Scripture because of the contrasts and the comparison, and that leads us to the two results. So here's what's really great about the Bible. The Bible speaks of success and failure in terms of being blessed or being cursed. And so you can actually look from cover to cover in the Bible. It's going to put these two things up against each other. It's going to show the wisdom of choosing wisely. It's going to show the folly of, of choosing poorly. I'll just give you a couple of examples. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the newly minted people of God are gathered together and they're presented with two options. This is one of the most fascinating sections of Scripture, Deuteronomy 28. Uh, The first option they're giving are blessings for those who obey the Lord, and the second option they're given are curses for those who choose to disobey the Lord. Now, if you were to take the time and, you know, read through this because you really have nothing else to do this afternoon and you want some light reading, and you read through Deuteronomy 28, you're going to notice three things. The first thing you're going to notice is the overwhelming scope of blessing. Those words are used intentionally. The overwhelming scope of blessing. In fact, uh, Deuteronomy 28 verse 2 says, And all of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. I don't know about you, but overcome and overtake, used in this context, I'm like, that's good enough for me. That's good enough for me. But what's interesting is that the exact same words are used in the context of curses. That if you choose to disobey the Lord, these curses will overcome you. They will overtake you. Now, the second thing you're going to notice is that there really is wisdom in obedience. There's wisdom in obedience. In fact, you can read through the first 14 verses, and I challenge you to come up with one good reason why you would not choose this path. Though Jeremiah gives us the reason why we don't choose this path. Okay, so 14 verses that talk about blessing, and 54 verses that talk about curses in Deuteronomy 28. I mean, talk about your fine print, right? You know, all those agreements that you all just, yeah, I agree, I agree. You know, 54 verses of why you should not disobey the Lord. So you read through those 54 verses, and again, I challenge you, give me one good reason not, you know, give me a good reason why this is a good path. And, and Jeremiah, again, talks about the absurdity of obedience. 
of disobedience. But he also teaches us why we often choose that path. A second example is Psalm 1. In fact, in our scripture reading this morning, you've got an example of that, a taste of that. But Psalm 1 opens and we're invited into the same contrast and the same choices. The way of the righteous is given as those who are wise and they are the ones who trust in the Lord. They are like a tree that flourishes beside the stream of water. But the way of the wicked is the way of the foolish and these are those who do not trust in the Lord. And and Psalm 1 says they're chaff that's blown away by the wind. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus picks up this same idea, this same theme, but he talks about two builders. One of the greatest children's church song ever. You know, the wise man built his house upon the rock. You know, if you've ever sung, I kind of feel like we need to sing that song right now, but we don't have time because all the kids just wait for, you know, the part where the house goes splat. You know, they love that part. You know, the foolish man building his house upon the sand. What Jesus says in Matthew 7 is that the person who hears the words of Jesus and lives by them, that person is a wise man, a wise woman, and they're building a house, they're building their life on a rock. But the person who hears the words of Jesus and chooses not to live by them, That person is a foolish person and is building their house upon the sand. Now, Jeremiah 17 is doing the exact same thing. Doing the exact same thing. Showing by contrast and comparison that the one who trusts in the Lord is blessed. The one who trusts in man is cursed. Now, the context of Jeremiah 17 is this. The people of Israel, the children of Israel, the children of God, once again, were chasing after other gods, the gods of the nations surrounding them. And rather than relying on God for their hope and their strength and their salvation, they were relying upon false gods. What's important for you to see in Jeremiah 17 is that that all of these scriptures are trying to tell us there is an obvious result of how the trajectory of your life is going to go based on what you choose. And what I need you to notice about Jeremiah 17, that in both cases, first of all, God is not cursing or damning the person who chooses this life. As if it were part of some twisted quid pro quo. And in a large respect, God is not necessarily directly blessing the person who chooses this kind of life as part of some divine quid pro quo. The person who trusts in man as their choice of how to live has cursed themselves and to a large degree all of those who share life with them. The person who is choosing this path to trust in the Lord as the foundation of their life and to hear the words of Jesus, they are bringing upon themselves because of that choice blessing and by default all the people that they share life with. So if you look again at verse 5, there's a natural progression. Look at it. The person who trusts in man, the person who makes flesh his strength, the person whose heart turns away from the Lord, that person, and here's the better word, they're doomed. They're doomed. It's the same idea that the Proverbs come back to again and again, especially in Proverbs 28, 
verse 11 when it talks about how a, a, a rich person is wise in his own eyes, but a foolish person or a, a, a humble person, a poor man, can figure this out. And you look at verse 14, and this is really telling. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. The more you choose this life, the more you make these choices, the more you trust in all these other things except for God, the more you are hardening your own heart. And you receive uh, the result of that. Uh, Jesus in the Beatitudes, especially in Luke's version, in Luke chapter 7, was talking about there is a way that you can bring blessing on yourself. And, and there is a way, and he uses the, the, uh, a very interesting word, there's a way that you bring woe upon yourself, upon your life. And it's all based on what you trust. Jeremiah is just stating something that the children of God had known for eons. You can choose blessing or curse. It's up to you. And the choice you make determines outcome. Joy to the person who chooses wisely, but woe to the person who chooses poorly. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says it this way, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Listen to this. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. Well, there's one more thing in the text, and, and, and that's Jeremiah addressing the why on earth would you choose this? Why on earth would you choose this? It just seems so logical that we would all, at every moment in our life, that we would choose this. So why is it that we choose otherwise? I mean, why even when faced with the overwhelming negative evidence of what this choice is going to do to us, do we go ahead and say, yeah, but I'm going to do it anyway? Jeremiah says the reason is because the default mode of the human heart is deceit. Deceit. The default mode of the human heart is deceit. Uh, To live in this fallen world, to live in this cursed world, it demands unwavering allegiance and trust. One of our resident theologians, uh, Debbie Peterson, she uh, spoke of this so eloquently in her prayer last week. If you were here, she prayed, God, help us hold tightly to you and lightly to all other things. This is such a radical concept that it almost seems like a foreign language in today's build bigger barns culture. To live in this cursed world, it requires radical trust. Even as Jesus points out in Matthew chapter 7, both builders have radical trust. They do. Both of them have radical trust. One is radically trusting in one thing, and the other is radically trusting in the other. In in Psalm 1, the way of the righteous is just as radical as the way of the wicked. 
And Jeremiah 17 explains to us why it's foolish to trust in your own wisdom, in your own understanding, and your own strength. Because verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What this means is that we are, every one of us, more wicked than we dare believe. We just are. We are more wicked than we could ever believe. But the gospel comes in and says you're more loved and more forgiven than you could ever imagine. But more than just loved, we're given, because of love, the freedom to choose to live for God. God is not forcing us. Well, I mean, if you look at the 54 verses, it's kind of forcing, but God is giving us a choice. He says, you can choose how you want to live, and you can choose the result. And there are two places in Jeremiah. One is in chapter 24, and one is in chapter 32 that tell us the real solution to get out of this kind of life and to get into this kind of life is a change of heart. Can't do it without a change of heart. Can't do it without God changing your heart. Now for us, we read stuff like this, and for us, the heart is the seat of the emotions, right? You know, you'll hear someone say, my heart is just not in it, you know, or he broke my heart, my achy, breaky heart. You know, it's heart is, heart is emotions for us. But in the Bible, the heart is the seat of trust. It's the seat of trust. It's what you're trusting in, what you're depending on, what you're relying on, what you're building upon. The Bible is trying to teach us that you can't trust yourself, you can't trust your own intuition, you can't trust your own wisdom, you can't trust your own reasoning, you can't trust your own understanding. And in fact, the Bible is saying that's such a radical thing to do, to try to trust yourself. Another wisdom saying goes like this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. See, this is a radical problem that we all face, and here's the thing about a radical problem, it requires a radical solution. Now, if you've been keeping count at home, I've said the word radical like 6,000 times in the last few sentences, but I've done that intentionally because um, we find the root of the word radical in the word that Jeremiah uses, root. The word radical, um, in the Latin, it comes from the word radix, which is where we get the English word radical. And, And here's the definition. Relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something. It relates to or affects the fundamental nature of something. What you trust in, what you rest in, relates to or affects the fundamental nature of your life on this earth, not to mention the one we have yet to experience. Okay, so if you've been to a college graduation recently, there's this moment that's often missed because, well, you know, who really listens at college graduations, right? But there's this, there's this particular moment where the president or the chancellor gets up to confer the degrees on the candidates. And, and he invites all the candidates to stand, and the president or chancellor will say something like this. 
I hereby confer upon you bachelor degrees as indicated with all rights and privileges thereunto appertaining. Ah, they just don't talk like we used to, right? See, uh, Jeremiah 17 and Psalm 1 and Matthew 7, they're telling us two things, and they're really the same two things. First, you have a choice to make, so consider carefully and make the right choice. Uh, Second, the choice you make is the choice you live for and the choice you live with and the choice you die for and die with, with all outcomes and results thereunto appertaining. Talk about an interesting graduation, right? Uh, Would all the candidates for graduation who choose building their life upon the rock please stand, you know? I mean, that's, that'd be an interesting graduation. Uh, Would all the candidates for graduation who choose building their life on sand please stand? There's a wise choice and there's a foolish choice. Augustine says that we worship what we love. And by now, we've probably figured out that we love what we choose to love. And what this means is that whatever is at the center of your heart, whatever you're trusting in, that's the foundation of what you're building on. So I would ask you this morning to consider what radical thing are you building on? What radical thing are you trusting in? Both contrasting outcomes are are the product of the same root. And yet, one choice will ultimately crush you whereas the other choice will ultimately raise you up. Now, there's a quick danger here of subscribing to a form of dualism where we say, okay, Lord, we're going to trust you for salvation, the eternal stuff, the spiritual stuff, but we'll figure everything else out on our own, the earthly things. But the Bible is trying to warn us and teach us against the folly of such delusion. I love the the preacher's joke about the flood that's coming and and the waters are rising and the guy prays, oh Lord, please deliver me. And a guy comes by in a rowboat and says, get in. And and the guy says, no, no, thank you. I'm trusting in the Lord. And the waters continue to their eyes and the guy has to get up on the second story of his house and a motorboat comes by and the guy in the motorboat says, get in. And the guy says, no, no, thanks. I'm, I'm trusting in the Lord. And pretty soon the water's higher and a helicopter comes and they lower one of those ropes and they're shouting from the megaphone going, get in, get in, get in, you know, climb the, climb the ladder. And the guy says, no, 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 that's okay, I'm trusting in the Lord. And the waters eventually rise and the mountain drowns and he goes straight to heaven and approaches God and just anger and says, you know, why did you let me down? I trusted you, I trusted you, and you let me down. And God says, I sent you two boats and a helicopter, what more do you want? There's a difference between faith and foolishness. And I'm going to say something else now that might be difficult for some of you to hear. Trusting in the Lord does not in any way guarantee any favorable outcome in this life. It's much like those things for which we pray. Pray is not a guarantee of Prayer is not a guarantee of any favorable outcome. But Lord, where else would we go? It's not about how much faith we have. It's about who our faith is in. Lord, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. It's not about figuring out what to do all the time. Lord, we don't know what to do, but we're going to keep our eyes on you. 
It's not about living a good life so that God will answer your prayers and do everything you want. Because if that's the case, then you're just serving God for what he can do for you. Lord, help us hold tightly to you and lightly to all other things. It's not an issue of deserving either because bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. Jesus said it this way, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. If you're paying attention, the life that Jesus describes in Matthew 5 through 7 is a difficult life to live. It's a challenging life to live. And if salvation depends on you living that kind of life perfectly, then you're perfectly doomed. You just are. Because you can't do it. So it's a good thing that our salvation is not at stake here. But yet, since Jesus lived that kind of life perfectly for you, and since your salvation is not at stake, though it's still a difficult way to live, Jesus says, do so, live this way, hear my words, and live this kind of life, because in the end, it is the only wise choice. That's a radical life. This kind of life requires courage. It requires conviction. But most of all, it requires confession. It requires daily acknowledgement. I am not where I want to be. I am not who I want to be. But by the grace of God and his spirit in me, I am becoming who he needs me to be. And you can't get this kind of life unless you're immersing yourself in the word of God. Unless you're figuring out this life that Jesus is calling us to live. And here's the thing. Jesus wraps it all up, this whole beatitude, this whole Sermon on the Mount, this whole, that thing about the two builders. Jesus wraps it all up and says, yeah, it's a difficult life, it's a difficult choice, it's hard to live this way, but live this way as you wait for and as you expect the storms to come. See that? Jesus doesn't say, live this way and you'll be exempt from all the bad things that life has to happen. Jesus says, even when you live this way, you're going to sometimes feel this way. But you need to live this way, expecting that the storms will come. So a couple of weeks ago, we had a tornado warning, right? Like the first year we were here, we were in Sam's four times for tornado warnings. Right? What we learned is we got to quit going to Sam's. You know, that's essentially what we learned. But so, tornado warning, a couple of weeks. Who, who sought shelter? Raise your hand. Who slept through it? Yeah, right? You wouldn't think that's possible, you know? So, we're there huddled in our closet. And uh, in that moment when I'm huddled there with my sweetie in the closet, I can't help but hope that the weather service is wrong. But if not, and a tornado really is coming, then we hope it passes somewhere else, right? A deserted field would be fine. But if they are right and a tornado is bearing down on us, then the only thing to do in that moment is to trust in the place of shelter that you've chosen. 
Uh, here's the thing about that moment when you're huddled in your tornado shelter. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how connected you are. It doesn't matter how incredibly good-looking you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. The only thing that matters is the choice you made of shelter. It's the only thing that matters. And the person whose heart is choosing to trust God is saying, God, you are my shelter. You are my strong tower. Let the wind come. Let the waves come. Let this world throw whatever it can at me because my hope, my security is not in those things I just mentioned because it only leads to this. My hope is in you, my strong tower, my shelter. Jesus knew this, perhaps anyone else in the world. And I want you to notice this final great contrast. And I want to let you in on a little secret. The devil is trying to deceive you. See, he's offering you what looks like this life. But in the end, it's actually this life. It's fake. It's not genuine. Because what he doesn't want you to see that behind the mask is this life. Is what you get. What the devil is really trying to tell you is this. And it's a counterfeit exchange. He's trying to say, your life... For my life. And Jesus, on the other hand, he's, he's, he's trying to rescue you from that darkness. He's trying to, there's no smoke, there's no mirrors. He's trying to say, you know what? The reality is, if you're not planted in the right place and you don't water this plant, it's going to die. Because it's hard. It's difficult. But what Jesus is telling you that's different from what the devil is telling you is that Jesus says... My life for your life. My life for your life. Notice that Jesus carefully followed all the commandments of God. Jesus faithfully obeyed the voice of God, and yet Jesus was condemned in the city. He was crucified. Not now. You need to go sit down. We'll talk later. Thank you. Thank you. Good cheer by John 3.16. Jesus was condemned in the city, and he was crucified in the field. The same crowd that shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in just a few days' time shouted, crucify, crucify. And because this world is under curse, it's not an automatic result that trusting in God leads to success. And Jesus is not just an example of this reality. He's our Savior because of this reality. He was cursed that we might be blessed. He was cut off that we might be grafted in. Though Jesus fulfilled the entire law for our sake, he suffered affliction, rejection, humiliation, scorn, and ultimately death. Would you stand with me? As our prayer teams take their place, who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Ha! Ah.